Cairo, Egypt, 1324. A man is brought before Mamluk Sultan Al-Nazir Muhammad, with his advisor saying he just showed up out of the blue with thousands of people, spending insane amounts of money in his markets and buying out entire stocks of all kinds of goods. The man is dressed in fine, traditional African silks and brings gifts for the Sultan. The advisors explain that the man claims to be from a large empire far in the west. The Sultan looks the man up and down, curious about who he was, and orders the man to prostrate himself before him, as was customary for the Sultan to demand as a show of respect. The man, however, refuses. Surprised, the Sultan asks, why not? The man says, because I am just as much of a king as you. I have far more money than you, and far more land than you. For someone to challenge the authority of the Sultan was unheard of, and yet this man did it with elegance and poise. Who was he? His name was Mensa Musa, and he was intent on changing African history forever. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about some stuff that really happened. Yes, everything I talk about in this podcast really, really happened. And I am thrilled to be back with all of you talking about one of the crazier stories in the in the world history. We're going to be talking about Mansa Musa, the story of the Mali Emperor who really made his mark on African history. And uh, how he did it, how he got there, what exactly he did, why it's important, why it's interesting, and the story itself, of course. Now remember, before we begin, head over to Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing, and if you feel so inclined, leave me a nice note to read in the review section. I love to read it. I'm so glad you are all here to join me on yet another journey through history, and this time we are traveling to Africa. We're going to be spending this entire episode in Africa, and some of my favorite episodes I've ever done have been in Africa. So, without further ado, let us begin. Now, for the story of Mansa Musa to be told properly, it has to be told from the time he walks into Cairo, Egypt, in 1324. So, in July of that year, the people of Cairo start noticing that this enormous entourage has begun camping by the Great Pyramids of Giza right outside the city. For three days, more and more people show up at this big encampment, with some reports saying as many as 60,000 people at the culmination are sitting there encamped around the Pyramids of Giza. And so, after three days of this, then they start crossing the Nile River and entering Cairo. And they're led by this dude who calls himself Musa. Now, I want you to picture this. 60,000 traveling people all together, all wearing fine Persian silk. 12,000 of these people are slaves, and all of them are carrying at least four pounds of gold bars. A number of heralds, potentially 500s, uh, 500 on horseback who are all carrying gold staffs 
and 600 camels carrying 50 to 300 pounds of gold dust each. Now, this is all before discussing the baggage train that was needed to sustain all of these traveling people. So, all of this, this whole entourage starts wandering through the narrow streets of Cairo, and they start purchasing all manner of goods from with, with this pure gold. Whether it was dust, whether it was bars, it was pure gold that they were using to purchase things. People started crowding the streets to see what all the hubbub was about. And from what little written history we have from this period, what we know is that Musa was going to stop at nearly every single shop he passed. And if he liked something, he would buy up the entire stock with gold, often willingly overpaying for it. Reports are that he'd give small bags of gold dust to beggars he passed along the way. And legend has it that he'd build a new mosque every Friday. Just because. When he went to meet with the Sultan, who was obviously curious about who this guy was, he refused to bow before him, which was culturally customary. And when asked why not, he simply said, My empire is bigger than yours, I have more money than you, and I'm a king too. All of which was true. The Sultan goes, Wait, 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 your empire is bigger than mine? Where are you from, anyway? Musa declares that he is the Mansa of the Mali Empire. What he called the largest empire in the world. Now, the reason I gave you all of that exposition beforehand was so you could experience this kind of the way that the Sultan of Egypt at the time experienced it. All of this information was brand new, and it all seemed kind of crazy to digest at once. So to start off, here's the story of the Mali Empire. What was the Mali Empire? Well, during Musa's reign, the Mali Empire was the largest empire in Africa and really the world second only to the Mongol Empire at the time, covering most or all of modern-day Senegal, the Gambia, and Mali, as well as pieces of Mauritania, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Niger, and even a sliver of the Côte d'Ivoire. It was big, really big, and exceptionally powerful, but where did it come from and how did it get there? Well, the origins of the Mali Empire are somewhat hard to track by modern standards, since there wasn't a whole lot of writing happening in West Africa up until the 14th century. The earliest we can trace large organized population centers in the area is to around the 6th century AD, but the first inklings we have of widespread leadership in the area starts around 1100 AD, when early Islamic writings tell the story of a substantial king in West Africa being converted to Islam which is around the time the kingdoms of West Africa start uniting. See, West Africa in the 11th and 12th centuries, so the uh, 10, uh, 1000 and 1100 BC, it was largely governed by warlords and kings over smaller territories, states, kingdoms, that kind of, that kind, those kind of boundaries. And, and each of them had clear cultures, borders, and customs. Again, not a lot of written history here, but a whole lot of oral history. From what we understand, this is how it was before the unification. And before I say this, I got this info by superimposing a hypothetical map of these states based on oral histories and hypotheticals over a current map of West Africa, and the results were kind of interesting. So this is just to give you an idea of what this all looked like. So, okay, all that said, this is what I got. There were these states... Uh, and I'm just going to name them off, and then I'm going to say exactly where, or not exactly, but hypothetically where they were. So there was Takrur, over South Mauritania and North Senegal. Jolof, most of Senegal and the Gambia. 
Yarezna, a small state at the modern-day junctions between Senegal, Guinea, and Mali, Jiryu, most of northeastern Guinea, Mali, southern Guinea and northern Sierra Leone, Diafanu, the largest kingdom encompassing much of southwestern Mauritania, western modern-day Mali, Soso, central modern-day Mali, Sama and Jen, pieces of southern Mali and west Burkina Faso, Songhai, eastern Mali and western Niger, and Ouagadougou, central Burkina Faso. Now, you probably aren't familiar with all of those countries and all of those borders that I just talked about, but if you're interested, you could rewind, look at a map, and kind of just kind of see what I'm talking about there. Well, as far as I can tell, these states generally lived in peace with one another, everyone just chilling, doing their own thing for centuries. According to legend, the Ghana Empire collapsed and became the Soso Kingdom, which was in disarray following that collapse. Seizing upon this disarray, an outside kingdom, uh, probably from the north, uh, invaded Soso and overtook it, subjugating its people. Then, they began consolidating power and threatening the surrounding kingdoms. Now we see the hero of the Mali Empire story, and his name is Sandiata Keita. Okay, Sandiata's story is cool as hell. So I'm just going to tell you the whole thing in, in like a Sparknotes version, but it's freaking cool. So Sundiata was born to a powerful king in West Africa by one of his many wives. His mother was a hunchback and was not known for her beauty. Sundiata likewise was crippled from birth. However, according to a prophecy presented by one of the king's magicians, Sundiata was destined to be a great leader. And because of this prophecy paired with Sundiata's obvious deformities, he and his mother were the subject of ridicule by the rest of the king's wives and their children for the first few years of Sundiata's life. During this time, the king passed away and requested that Sundiata be made the new king in order to fulfill this prophecy. But instead, his advisors appointed another of the king's sons to the throne, one that had a particular dislike for Sundiata. Instead of bowing to the ridicule, Sundiata decided to use it as motivation, and after years of diligence and dedication, he learned to walk and became strong, really, really strong. In fact, his drive made him a leader among his peers as he grew, and as he developed, the new king became threatened by his natural aptitude for authority. Over time, the new king and his mother became hostile and began threatening the lives of Sundiata and his mother. To escape this, Sundiata's mother took him and his sisters into exile, where they moved from place to place for many years to escape the persecution before eventually appearing before the king of a nearby territory and seeking asylum. When they explained who they were, the king was impressed with their story. He admired Sundiata's courage and charisma and also was very curious that he was the son of a king. The king gave Sundiata's mother and siblings a really nice place to live and made Sundiata a senior official in his kingdom. For the next few years, Sundiata learned as much as he could about ruling and became something of an apprentice to the king. During this time, the Soso kingdom was subjugated and began threatening its neighboring kingdoms, one of which was the kingdom Sundiata grew up in. One day, a messenger arrives from that kingdom looking for Sundiata. He says the new king is weak, and when the invaders showed up, he simply bowed down and pledged fealty to them without a fight. And now his people were suffering, and the time had come for the return of the prophesied king. 
The king that Sundayata had been apprenticed to heard all of this, and he gave Sundayata an army to liberate this people. With his new power, Sundayata set off to every free kingdom he could think of in hopes of having them pledge their allegiance to his cause. And after months of this, he assembled a coalition of West African kingdoms who marched on the Soso kingdom. And in a climactic battle, Sundayata and his allies triumphed over the, com triumphed over the conquerors and sent them running from the Soso kingdom whose liberated people, along with the rest of the allied kingdoms, declared Sundayata their rightful leader, bestowing upon him the title of Mansa, meaning King of Kings, fulfilling the prophecy that had been in place since Sundayata was a boy. Sundayata unified the kingdoms into the Mali Empire, becoming its first emperor, or Mansa. So that's the epic of Sundayata. Is it all true? Can't be said for sure. What is true is that Sundayata Keita was a real person, he was the first leader of the Mali Empire, his mother was deformed, and the Ghana Empire's dissolve was real, and the Battle of Karina, which is where Sundayata defeated the kingdom that was overtaking the Soso kingdom, definitely happened. The problem is that many aspects of this story might be exaggerated or distorted over time, and there are several versions of this legend. Not because people are lying, but because this story is an oral tradition. What is an oral tradition? Oral tradition, or oral lore, is a form of human communication wherein knowledge, art, ideas, and cultural material is received, preserved, and transmitted orally from one generation to another. The transmission is through speech or song and may include folk tales, ballads, chants, prose, or poetry. And in this way, it's possible for a society to transmit oral history, oral literature, oral law, and other knowledge across generations without a writing system or in parallel to a writing system. Religions such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, and Jainism, for example, have used oral tradition in parallel to a writing system to transmit their canonical scriptures, rituals, hymns, and mythologies from one generation to the next. Oral tradition is information, memories, and knowledge held in common by a group of people over many generations. It's not the same as testimony or oral history. In a general sense, oral tradition refers to the recall and transmission of a specific, preserved, textual, and cultural knowledge through vocal utterance. As an academic discipline, it refers to both, uh, both to a set of objects of study and to the method by which they are studied. Now, that's a lot of jargon. Here's a better way for me to explain it. Famous examples of oral tradition are Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, the story of Atlantis, which originated in Egypt, the legend of King Arthur, the story of El Dorado, the rumors of the Fountain of Youth, most polytheistic, po polytheistic religions such as the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and the Norse gods, the story of Johnny Appleseed, and so many others that we are all familiar with. Now, I could use that kind of jargon about what oral tradition is, but for me to kind of just say, yeah, it's the Iliad and the Odyssey and Atlantis and things like that, King Arthur, that, that makes a lot more sense. So those are what oral traditions are in a general sense. The story of Sundiata and the founding of the Mali Empire is oral tradition. Does that mean it's untrue? Not in the slightest. The Iliad and the Odyssey were thought to be completely bogus, but recent archaeological discoveries show the Battle of Troy was a real thing. The story of Atlantis was long thought to be just a legend, but recent discoveries and investigative journalists and archaeologists, along with some prominent YouTubers, shout out to Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, and Jimmy Corsetti from Bright Insight, are showing that it may have very well been a real place. 
All this to say that these stories can get blown out of proportion over centuries of oral retellings because they are not written down, and each retelling does have a different person retelling what they remember from the story, so over time, certain details can be lost and others can be added, things can be embellished, and you know, etc, etc. But moral of the story. The Mali Empire was first founded by the unification of all these West African kingdoms under a single banner led by Sundayata Keita. How it happened exactly is up to interpretation, but that much we do know to be true. So what did this mean for Mali? Well, first, the occupied Soso kingdom, which Sundayata had defeated, was the center of a whole lot of trade happening. Trade routes started in Soso and continued north toward Morocco, northeast toward Egypt, and southeast to Ethiopia, all of which were wealthy trade states at the time. So, Sundayata starts capitalizing on these trade routes, developing domestic goods and purchasing foreign goods. As he developed a greater understanding of trans-African trade, he quickly learned that people seemed to really like gold. It was prized above all other minerals. His scouts and other travelers reported to him that in the south and the west, there were these huge fields full of gold. And Sundayata knew that if he had control of those fields, his people would become very, very wealthy. Well, Sundayata, he, he'd had his day as the great military commander, and he wasn't really interested in doing that again, but his armies were sizable enough that he could appoint his commanders to do the work in his stead. During his reign, he expanded the territories of Mali west and south, all the way to the Gambia River and then southward, where his commanders found the enormous fields of gold and returned to inform Sundayata, who sent thousands of people to establish mining towns in the area. By the time of Sundayata's death, the Mali Empire had become larger than any African empire in known history up to that point, its borders potentially exceeding the believed territorial extent of ancient Egypt. In this time, they'd begun, to, they'd begun mining extraordinary quantities of gold from their newfound gold fields, salt from abundant salt deposits in the southern regions of the Sahara Desert that was incredibly expensive to regions in Central Africa where it was rare and precious, and copper mines in the northern regions of the empire, and in less than 100 years, the Mali Empire had become possibly the wealthiest state in the history of Africa. One more thing to note. Mali owed a lot of its wealth to slavery. The Mali Empire was very much a slave society. Whenever Mali warriors could, would capture territory, they enslaved many of the people to do a lot of the mining and farming for them. It's no secret that 12,000 of the 60,000 people who went on the pilgrimage with Mansa Musa were slaves. And that was only a tiny fraction of the amount of slaves in the overall empire. An unfortunate truth is that widespread slavery does breed economic prosperity, and Mali was no exception. Their mines would not be nearly as successful without the enslavement of the conquered states, and because of that enslavement, Mali got put on maps all around Africa and the Mediterranean, creating, a, creating huge trading centers that continued to enrich the empire. It's a sad truth, but, but it is a truth that I think is worth noting nonetheless. Anyway, when the Mali Empire reached the Atlantic Ocean during or shortly after Sundayata's reign, they decided that they wanted to see the other side. Yeah, of the Atlantic Ocean. So after Sundayata's death, the next king decided to order a huge expedition to explore the furthest reaches of the ocean, and according to Arab historians of the time, he sent 200 ships into the ocean, instructing them only to return when their food and water ran out. After what was supposedly a long time, only one ship returned and had little to report other than that the rest of the ships had disappeared. 
disbelieving the explorers, the king decided to lead his own expedition of 2,000 ships, 1,000 full of men and 1,000 full of provisions, and he decided to lead the expedition himself. In his stead, he appointed one of his deputies to take charge of his empire in his stead. That deputy's name was Musa. And according to Musa, when the king did not return, Musa ascended to the role of Mensa, or king of Mali in his own right, becoming the famous Mansa Musa. Or, at least, that's the story he told the sultan in Egypt. We're going to take a quick break to get a little uh, word from our sponsors, and we will be right back. Do not go anywhere. When Mansa Musa showed up in Egypt with thousands of servants, slaves, concubines, heralders, and other company, claiming to be the king of an empire far larger and richer than that of Egypt, the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, Al-Nazir Muhammad, had his doubts. Initially, he ordered Musa to prostrate himself before the king, but Musa refused. The Sultan, surprised, asked why. Musa replied, I'm as much of a king as you are, and I have more land than you do. He asked Musa a series of prodding questions, trying to find flaws in his story. The first of these questions was obvious. What makes you a king? Musa handled the sultan's questions with eloquence that was enough for them to write down in history books. He explained that his elder cousin, Sundayat Akita, had founded the Mali Empire, which according to Muslim scholars of the time, that relationship can be corroborated as true. He said that later his predecessor, which... Accounts of the conversation say he did not explicitly name his predecessor, but that he'd launched these two huge expeditions to explore the Atlantic Ocean, though he never returned. During the expeditions, Musa claimed that his predecessor appointed him as the steward of his throne, basically meaning he took charge of the day-to-day -day ruler stuff until the Mansa got back. However, his predecessor never came back, nor did anyone from the voyage. And when it became apparent that he was never coming back, Musa took the throne and became Mansa. Now, we're not going to do a definition here. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to do an analysis. Quick analysis here, because some things didn't exactly ring true to me. First of all, the size and scale of the voyages that Musa claimed were taken seemed almost impossible for the Mali Empire to have undertaken at that time. For 2,000 ships to have departed Mali, and none of them ever to return, none of them at all, seems strange. African kingdoms, along with the most inheritance-based kingdoms throughout history, often have sordid stories of those in line to be ruler murdering the one on the throne so they can succeed them. Musa's story that his predecessor embarked on this voyage only to mysteriously never return, and Musa, who was not the next in line to be Mansa, takes his throne seems at least suspicious to me. To add to this, according to Muslim scholars who journeyed to Mali after meeting Musa, the economy of Mali did not seem to have been at all affected by the massive voyage. It is very possible that the voyage was much smaller than Musa claimed, or perhaps never took place at all. Yes, I am suggesting that there is a possibility that Musa killed his predecessor to ascend to the throne, but before everyone freaks out, there is some evidence to the contrary. Like I said before, in the first smaller voyage, one ship returned, saying that the rest of the ships were caught in some sort of, quote, river on the ocean that carried them off, never to be seen again. 
It's presumable that, if this is true, these ships were caught in one of the many large currents on the ocean and carried far from shore. Now, off the west coast of Africa, very near where Mali where the Mali Empire reached the ocean, there exists one of these large currents called the Canary Current. The Canary Current is a wind-driven current that pushes water from the coast of Portugal down past West Africa and over the Atlantic to the Caribbean. This river that the explorers reported may have been the Canary Current and it may have carried them far across the Atlantic, maybe even landing in the Caribbean. Modern historians and scholars generally come to the conclusion, consensus that there is no concrete proof that this took place, but it's still possible. Portuguese explorers that came to Hispaniola, which is modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, reported to King John II of Portugal that they'd found canoes that had come all the way from Guinea, Africa, and that there were people on this island with exceptionally dark skin, and they carried arrowheads that were made of, primarily, get this, gold. But before you get excited, the same metal that made those arrowheads has been found extensively in pre-Columbian Central American artifacts. Archaeologists in the Caribbean state clearly that no African artifacts that predate Columbus's voyage have ever been found in the Caribbean. But it's still possible that the Mali explorers found their way all the way to the Caribbean. And if they did, the route and behavior of the Canary Current could explain how they never got back. The Canary Current goes all the way to the Caribbean, but it doesn't go back. If the Mali explorers tried to return the same way they came, they would never be able to make any progress against the current. Instead, they could get trapped in the Gulf Stream, which carries water up from the Caribbean northward along the east coast of the United States and northward toward Canada and Greenland. This current is so powerful that it was even documented by explorer Ponce de Leon, who on April 22nd, 1513, noted that the Gulf Stream was, quote, a current such that, although they had great wind, they could not proceed forward but backward. And it seems that they were proceeding well. At the end, it was known that the current was more powerful than the wind. Now, were this the case? Getting thrown off course wouldn't be the only problem. In the central Atlantic, minus an occasional hurricane, the seas are relatively calm. However, the further north you get, seas get rougher and far more dangerous. There is no evidence of Malians building huge, durable ships like the Europeans, and it's highly unlikely that any of them could have navigated through the rough seas of the North Atlantic in ships they built for the shores of West Africa. If you want my opinion... Either these voyages were much smaller than what Musa claimed, or they didn't happen at all. And Musa made the story up to justify his genealogically illegitimate ascension to the throne. Honest opinion. Though the Malians were intrepid land explorers and conquerors, they were not widely renowned shipbuilders, seafarers, or voyagers, nor is there tangible evidence to support any statement otherwise. <laughs> Fun little analysis, I think. But, in any case, this is the story that Musa told the Mamluk Sultan in Cairo in 1324, and by all accounts, the Sultan didn't th seem to think he was lying. Next, he asked Musa, What are you doing here? At this, Musa explained that he was on a sacred pilgrimage called Hajj. <laughs> what is Hajj? Hajj is an annual Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, the holiest city for Muslims. Hajj is a mandatory religious duty for Muslims that must be carried out at least once in their lifetime by all adult Muslims who are physically and fi financially capable of undertaking the journey and of supporting their family during their absence from home. 
The word Hajj means to attend a journey, which connotes both the outward act of a journey and the inward act of intentions. In Islamic terminology, Hajj is a pilgrimage made to the Kaaba, the house of God, in the sacred city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. It is one of the five pillars of Islam, alongside Shahada, oath to God, Salat, prayer, Zakat, almsgiving, and Saum, fasting of Ramadan. The Hajj is a demonstration of the solidarity of the Muslim people and their submission to God, who they call Allah and is associated with the life of Islamic prophet Muhammad from the 7th century AD. But the ritual of pilgrimage to Mecca is considered by Muslims to stretch back thousands of years to the time of Abraham. Today, millions of Muslims make the Hajj every year from all over the world to Mecca, and the Saudi Arabian government has taken great strides in modernizing the city to host the enormous annual influx of visitors. <laughs> In the late 1200s and the early 1300s, with the Mali expansion along the Trans-Saharan trade routes, Mali merchants had returned to the nation accompanied by Muslim missionaries, or simply converted to Islam themselves. By 1324, nearly all of Mali had converted to Islam, and the Mansas were no exception. In fact, in the early 1300s, a previous Mansa had passed through Cairo on the Hajj, but not nearly with the decadence with which Musa had decided to make the trip, though that Mansa had perished along the journey. So, when Mansa Musa showed up in Cairo and explained that he was on the Hajj, the Mamluk Sultan believed it. There wasn't much reason not to, however, the procession itself seemed a bit excessive. By all accounts, after the initial awkwardness of the visit and Musa refusing to bow before the Sultan, they seemed to get along pretty well. After the meeting, Musa and his caravan stuck around Cairo for three full months before continuing onward toward Mecca, and in that time, Musa spent very freely, buying out entire stocks of goods and giving sacks of gold dust to any beggars he encountered along the way. In fact, this is the craziest part of this story, in fact, he spent so much gold in the city in such a short amount of time that he crashed the price of gold in the city. You see, Musa brought more gold to Egypt than the city had ever seen at one time and practically gave it all away in a demonstration of his extravagance. So suddenly, everyone in Egypt had an insane amount of gold. And it's like Syndrome says in The Incredibles, if everyone's super, no one will be. So when everyone has an insane amount of gold, the prices for everything go up because people have more to spend, so then no one has any gold. When everyone's super rich, no one's super rich. And this sent Egypt in the 1300s into an economic crisis, as what little gold everyone had saved became practically worthless overnight. As for Musa, he just said, peace, I'm out, and kept heading to Mecca, and bailed out on October 18th, 1324. Dude showed up in one of the most famous cities in the world, crashed the price of gold, caused an economic crisis nationwide, refuses to elaborate, and then he bailed out. Well, anyway, his entourage kept moving toward Mecca, and the rest of the journey to the holy city seemed to go pretty well, minus a brief confrontation with Turkic pilgrims that nearly resulted in some serious bloodshed that Musa diffused at the last second with some expert diplomatic skills. The way back from Mecca, however... Well, that's a whole different ballgame. When I think of Saudi Arabia, I think of heat. Blistering, nauseating heat. I'm not a person built for heat. I have that warm Scandinavian Viking blood. So when I think of the Saudi desert, I think of inhospitable, unsurvivable heat. However, at night, particularly in January and February, 
temperatures in the Saudi desert are known to have dropped below freezing on occasion. During Musa's return journey, a number of his exhausted company dropped dead, not from heat, but from cold. When they had to let go of some supplies because of the missing help, others died of starvation. And to add to that, some of the bandits roaming the Saudi desert started attacking pilgrims and heard of this insanely wealthy caravan passing through their territory. They decided they wanted to check it out. The weakened forces of Musa's entourage were further weakened by their raids, and by the time Musa got back to Cairo, his troop was a skeleton of what it once was. Then, the big embarrassment came. Musa had run out of money. Musa had spent so freely, and enough of his people had gotten lost or perished, that his caravan had completely run out of money to replenish the stocks needed to get back to Mali. Any other ruler would panic. But Musa? Nah. He visited all the lenders in Cairo and took out huge loans from each of them, even when they jacked up their interest rates to practically double what he was taking out. Was he dumb for not noticing? No. He noticed. He simply said, I've got enough back home to pay it all back and then some. And he did. For years after, caravans of gold trekked all the way back across the Sahara to Cairo delivering Malian gold to repay Musa's debts. And finally, in 1326, two years after he departed, Mansa Musa crossed back into the borders of the Mali Empire, it being even bigger than it was when he left. Oh yeah, crazy side note. Musa was such a respected ruler that when he bailed out for two years, his generals just kept building the Mali Empire instead of trying to take the throne for themselves. That, in and of itself, is a crazy thing about his rule considering the circumstances. Anyway, when Musa got back to Mali, he visited his newly acquired cities of Timbuktu and Gao, both very large trading centers. When in Timbuktu, he built a new university and populated it with Arab thinkers, astronomers, historians, and all kinds of other scholars he'd picked up along his journey. And this, in my opinion, is where we see Musa's true motives for going on Hajj. Along the road, Musa had met hundreds of Arab scholars, and back in Mali, he set off on a building spree where he constructed dozens of universities and other schools, some of which still stand today. These created cultural centers in Mali, where as many as 400 urban developments sprang up, many of them planned by architects and engineers. This was urban planning on a large scale happening in the 1300s in Africa. Fascinating stuff. Tales of Musa's exploits began spreading as soon as he left Cairo, and by the mid-1300s, merchants as far away as Venice and Genoa were adding Timbuktu on their maps as a prosperous center for trade. Cartographers during the time really liked putting symbols to represent things on their maps, and if you look at maps from the 1300s, you'll see a figure of Musa himself holding a gold staff and a golden relic painted over West Africa. Mali welcomed Musa back after his Hajj, and he reigned for a number of years after the adventure as Mali continued to prosper. The date of his death is widely unknown, but it was likely between 1332 and 1337 when his brother Suleiman took over. Musa left an unprecedented legacy in Mali, and even today he is celebrated in the nation as the man who put Mali on the map though some regard him as wasteful for giving away so much of his nation's wealth. But despite the naysayers, it is still, to this day, believed that Musa was the wealthiest individual in history for the amount of gold he controlled. Modern economists declare that there is simply no way to measure his amount of wealth by contemporary standards. But remember, 
This dude caused an economic crisis in Egypt simply by buying too much stuff. That's a lot of gold. Sadly, shortly after Musa died, the Mali Empire began its slow, painful decline, brought about by civil war, succession disputes, outside invasions, and things like that. And by the 1500s, the Mali Empire was virtually defunct. Many of Musa's beautiful construction projects were scrapped for materials, including his magnificent palace in Timbuktu. However, some of his mosques and universities still stand, such as the Jingaraber Mosque and the University of Sankor, both in Timbuktu. Today, the borders of Mali are somewhat different than what they were in the days of Mansa Musa, but people still tell stories of the wealth of the famous emperor who showed up in Cairo and single-handedly crashed the Egyptian economy on his holy trip to Mecca. What a legend. That's going to do it for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me on this journey back to Western Africa, all the way through the Sahara, to Cairo, to Mecca, and back again. This was a fun one. Interesting to learn about the legend Mensa Musa. This was, <laughs> this was really fun. Um, well... I won't waste any more of your time. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts. Wherever you listen to podcasts, drop a five-star review and tell your friends about the podcast. That would mean the world to me. I will catch you all next week with the next episode. I cannot wait. And uh, I don't know. Go have a good go have a good week. Go have a good weekend. Whenever you're listening to this, have a good time. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. All right. All right. I'm going to peace out before I go crazy. All right. Catch you all next time. <laughs>